did technology fuel the conspiracy theories that resulted in the unprecedented sacking of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th by violent supporters of former President Donald Trump? How does this event compare to others in history, and what are its implications for American democracy? Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is Techtopia, a podcast exploring the power, peril, and possibilities of technology. Joining me now is historian Joseph Kuhill. He's the producer and host of the popular Professor Buzzkill History Podcast, which addresses misconceptions and misunderstandings in history. Kuhill earned his doctorate in history from the University of Oxford in 1998 and has taught at universities in Britain and the United States. Joe, welcome to Techtopia. Well, thank you for having me on the show, and I love the idea of Techtopia. It's a great podcast. Thank you. When you watched the riotous mob sacking the U.S. Capitol last week, and you saw how Donald Trump unleashed violence against his own vice president at the United States Congress through his incendiary rhetoric, with your knowledge of modern world history, what were your first impressions and thoughts? Well, it followed very similar patterns to other sorts of mobs that flock together and act together based on essentially very, very shallow and already discredited information. It was mob mentality. Most of the people who were there didn't know much beyond the idea that, oh, I believe Trump and Trump believes this. They weren't necessarily deep QAnon encyclopedic people. but it, and, that, and that's very, very common. It's much easier to stir up emotions and have people rush to physically attack someplace than it is to say, oh, okay, let's sit down and have a discussion about this. So it looked to me an awful lot like as, as the media has portrayed it as, uh, you know, the Reichstag and various other things, you know, and a lot of people stormed the Berlin Wall in 1989, for instance, who weren't necessarily anti-East Germany. They were just, it was a big mob and they wanted to get their sledgehammers out and, and did so. So it's, 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 a, it's a very, very common thing in history, it, unfortunately, but um, it's one of these things we constantly have to contend with. Were you surprised that it actually happened here in America? Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, because I, I would have thought, given that there had been so many protests in 2020, and that the police presence and the military presence around the BLM protests in, in 2020 had been so strong, and there had been some rings around the Lincoln Monument and and rings of, of National Guardsmen around the Capitol, that that would have been taken care of beforehand. So I'm not surprised that it happened here. I am surprised that it was, that there was a kind of incompetent response by the security forces, if you will, not to be ready for it. There were people there from many different groups, many different beliefs, many different, uh, who believed in a lot of different conspiracies. And before we kind of delve into that, I know you like to sort of make this clarification between conspiracies, conspiracy theories, conspiracy mongering. What's that, what's that clarification? Well, yeah, I think this is a real problem uh, because, after all, a conspiracy is just a group of two or more people who get together and decide to do something and, do, and not tell anyone else about it. They do it in secret. In fact, the word conspiracy comes from two Latin words, con and spire, which means to breathe together. So they are literally very much in sync, right? And there have been conspiracies in the past. Julius Caesar's assassins were obviously conspired. Uh, there were conspiracy to murder Lincoln, and, and there have been other conspiracies. But what we mean when we talk about conspiracy theories and the fact that most of these conspiracy theories are untrue and cause all these problems is the tendency of lots of people to what I call conspiracy monger. 
They want to understand something that they can't understand, and it becomes much easier to apply a template of, oh, it's all the Jews, or it's all the deep state, or it's the Russians back in the Cold War that have that are doing all these things and planning all these things. That's a much simpler explanation than trying to figure out what's going on. And then it only spins out, it spins out from there. So people to jump to conclusions about all kinds of things without even thinking about the evidence at all. So there are conspiracies. Watergate was a conspiracy, right? But not every government action is is a conspiracy, even though conspiracy theorists and conspiracy mongers jump to that conclusion. When you look at some of these beliefs, you know, from QAnon and other groups, some of it is so extreme. And yet, President Trump was able to tap into that uh, extreme views. What helped him do it so successfully, would you say? It seems to me, just just by watching it, you know, in the news, one, he does tend to believe, does have a sort of paranoid strength to him. But two, it's very obvious, and it's became more obvious to him over the 2016 Republican primary and the election, that whipping up all these things, like the war on Christmas, which has never existed, was extremely popular, and people flocked to that sort of stuff. So he definitely realized and realizes that this is a way to gain supporters. And unfortunately, this is one of the things that turns conspiracy theories from the back room of a pizza joint with a couple people talking about something to actually having impact. When a major individual takes up these conspiracy theories and then promotes them, that's when they become really popular and really dangerous because it's a lot easier to believe in Trump, again, that's a very simple one-word sort of explanation, than it is to sit down and think about all the different things he's saying. Right? Well, the War of Christmas is a fast and easy one, but he's talking about all sorts of deep state things. Well, most people don't want to think about the deep state. They won't put that much work into it. But I believe in Trump means you that more easily follow everything else. And we see this with Hitler and Stalin and Mao and lots of other people. And a lot of people were warning each other and the government leaders, you know, even his own opponents in the primary about his tendency for these uh, deep state theories and willingness to use them. He didn't seem to have as much success as to where, you know, later in his presidency. What was the catalyst, that, that shift? When did you see that happen when he started to really resonate with the public? Well, remember, his first major conspiracy theory was the Obama birth certificate stuff. We should remember that that, you know, hooked in an awful lot of people who were otherwise sane, you know, People who pay their taxes, raise their kids, go to work, do these things, but they but they believe that. And I think that it was the the sort of paranoia and the resentment at being impeached and among his supporters by seeing him impeached again the first time and then losing the election. That's when we saw the intensification of what happened on January 6th. Those Trump gave the speech about come to Washington, let's get together, let's stop the steal and all that sort of stuff. And there's, there's something to hang your hat on then. There's like, all right, Trump has been robbed, therefore I have been robbed, and I'm going to go protest. And I, So I think that was the difference that made that happen on, on the 6th. And perhaps most importantly, and, and what, what people should really think about is that you know, a lot of people interviewed or, or shouting during the, uh, during the event were saying things like, 
I've been robbed. I've had my, my rights taken away from me. We want our government back. And these are people for whom, uh, I don't want to make too many assumptions here, but people for whom, you know, they have everything going for them. First of all, in the United States, they're white. Second of all, they, they're wealthy enough to, or they're or well off enough to afford plane tickets to get there. The government, by any stretch of the imagination, the government is working for them. Right, Democrats are working for them. Republicans are working for them. Yet it's the sense of resentment. It's the sense of having your rights taken away that's stronger than the actual reality. So I think that the election result was enough to push people over the edge. Yeah, but Charlottesville also had a big impact, correct, yes. in, in building that audience for him and his brand in that regard. Yeah, but well, we can't forget. You know, the, the, there are people who. I just said on the one hand, there are these people who are kind of normal who pay their taxes and raise their kids and otherwise. But then there, then there are the real extremists, the real violent bigots and, and, and the terrible, terrible people. And of course, obviously, the Proud Boys are, are those people. The KKK are those people. And unfortunately, it appears that those, those people will always be with us. But they can be marginalized by governments and by societies. And I think it's more important to have them marginalized by society than have them marginalized by governments until some some messianic leader comes along and then you know is elected president and it sort of legitimizes what they say and what they want to do and that that's the scary part and that's exactly how the hitler thing happened and not just messianic but uh, someone with a grasp of technology as trump did with twitter right i mean how how do you see technology being used to communicate with these messages to people and how it led to January 6th? Well, I don't think Trump has a great conception of technology. What I think Trump has is Twitter is a way to express his impulsiveness. He hates something, so he's able to say it right away, and it gets out there immediately, and then and then it just feeds on that. You know, I don't think Trump could handle 4chan or 8chan or anything beyond, beyond Twitter. But what technology seems to do is it... it the spread of conspiracy theories, the spread of conspiracy mongering, the spread of fear and the spread of resentment goes at the pace of whatever the current technology is. So don't forget, I mean, you know, in 1920s, late 1920s and 1930s, Germany, hate spread very, very rapidly because there was a telegraph and there was the radio and there were newspapers and all this sort of thing. So it's not a new thing. It's just what at whatever stage technology happens to be at a certain point, then any information can flow that quickly, and it, it comes, becomes very, very easy to read Twitter. And just on Twitter, just based on Twitter alone, you can believe enough in Trump to go to Washington. But don't forget, you know, John Wilkes Booth and his conspirators conspired through meeting and through the mail and, and even through coded telegraph messages. So it's not purely a modern, as in 21st century thing. It just is more accelerated. Those who want to debunk these conspiracies have the access to the same technology, but why is it that one is more powerful than the other? Well, I'm reminded by the famous quote that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth is putting its shoes on. Uh, this is attributed to Mark Twain. It's not a Mark Twain quote. I mean, we've done a show about that, which people can, can look up. But the, the reason is because... These conspiracy mongers and, and the people who, who produce these things, again, it's like this Trump impulsiveness. It's jumping at one, either one word, or a very, very short explanation of something, right? And it's usually 
hate or some person, you know, group they want to persecute. That travels a lot faster. Again, I hate constantly keeping up the Hitler analogy, but this is what, what happened. You know, it's all the Jews flies around the world or flew around Germany so much faster than a complicated analysis of whether Jewish bankers were in, in control of the, of, the, of the world's monetary situation, and on and on and on. And I remember even as a child, people would say things like, well, inflation is because of all the Jewish bankers in New York. I mean, this is just, this is just crazy. You know, things are very, very complex, but the simple answer can literally fly around uh, almost at the speed of, well, it's the speed of Twitter anyway. And the simple answer is always much more believable. People don't want to put in the work to try to figure out what happens. And he had a knack for distilling it down, like you said, to keywords like fight, which he repeated over and over again on January 6th, hate, keywords. Uh, he had a knack for, or has a knack for simplifying and distilling the message and then sending it out on Twitter. Um, so was there, is there any particular piece of propaganda in history, Nazi propaganda or anything else that you think sort of has some similarities to some of the messaging now? Well, I think a very good uh, parallel, a very good parallel example is the what was known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which it, which was a false document, a book written in Tsarist Russia in the early, the very first few years of the 20th century, in which it claimed to be a sort of guidebook for Jewish elites on how to take over the world. You know, we start with a merchant class, and we go to banking, then we do this, then we do that. But it was completely fabricated by anti-Jewish people. Well, this was believed very quickly. First of all, the Tsar, Russia had recently uh, conquered enough land and had, and, and, and had expanded enough that a lot of Jews in, in Eastern Europe came under their sort of control, and Tsars didn't know what to do with these groups of people. That seemed to be, on the one hand, very clannish, right? But on the other hand, also very involved in things like banking. So, you know, they, they seem to be a danger in both ways. And so they create this thing about uh, these elders of Zion who are out there as a cabal, as a conspiracy to rule the world. Now, relatively quickly, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is proved to be a fake. But again, it's just like the lie traveling around the world before the truth gets shoes on. It was too late by then, and Hitler had picked it up in the 1920s. Hitler relatively quickly stopped believing, you know, stopped believing that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was true. But since it fit his otherwise anti-Semitic narrative, he just kept pushing it. And Henry Ford, the American industrialist, even uh, published and promoted it in the United States. And, you know, these things, according to Henry Ford, were supposed to be taught in schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it just kept spreading and spreading and spreading. So, and again, like I say, well into the 1970s, you would hear grumbles at parties or sometimes family gatherings or other places where people would say, well, you know, it's all the, as I say, all the Jewish bankers in New York are controlling everything, when in reality, most bankers in New York are not Jewish. But again, it doesn't matter. And so the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was a, a way in which Hitler could add to his growing anti-Semitism and add to the growing anti-Semitism craze in Germany and just make everything worse. And that's exactly what's happening with QAnon and the deep state. You can explain everything in the world that goes wrong with the deep state. 9-11 happened because 
the deep state wanted to be able to fight a war against so-and-so, so they let the planes come in, and then they were able to whip up public opinion. The deep state is responsible for, you know, uh, uh, eventually a new world order and all these kinds of things. You can, if there's some sort, some sort of big group that's secret that you can blame everything on, then that's what you do. And it seems, again, to make sense because it fits in with this template. And with the age of the internet, with everything being available, even something as old as the protocols of the elders of Zion, probably you can still find it on the internet, right? So it's harder and harder to get rid of this stuff. Oh, yes. And in fact, I'm, I'm reliably informed by historians uh, of Middle Eastern studies and political science in Middle Eastern studies that there are a great number of groups in the Middle East who still believe the protocols of elders of Zion is, was true and is true. Now, the internet can also... And has also worked the other way. You know, it, it can it can debunk a lot of these things. And I've been hearing on the news lately, and they've and have been interviews with various people who have come out of these, if you will, conspiracy cults, and said, "Well, you know what? I I started to look at other things on the internet, and I started to talk to other people, and they started to realize that these things weren't true, or that they were so far fetched that they that they couldn't be true." So. Yes, it spreads everything faster, but it can also spread the truth faster. It just gets back to this: a conspiracy is always a conspiracy mongering is always a very simple explanation for a bad thing, whereas the truth is much more complicated. So that's the central problem. I don't necessarily think it's technology. Technology has accelerated it, right? But then it also has accelerated. The truth. I read a lot more about conspiracy theories and the and the research on conspiracy theories because it's a lot easier to do than I was when I was in college in the 1980s. I can look stuff up. So a lot of stuff is available, uh, you know, through uh, that that you that you had to get through interlibrary loan before, which sounds like you know ancient times, and you know, but but it's easy to get books now on Kindle and and, and everything else that that makes it more possible to try to understand the broad nature, but I'm willing, and in fact, it's my job to put in the work and the time to read all these things. Whereas for most people, that's not the case. Having read all this stuff, what do you think is the level of challenge that the US government and other governments around the world are confronting in uh, debunking these conspiracies and can we get back to the way it was before January 6th, I guess, is the question. Well, I would argue be careful about that back to the way it was thing, because there, they, these things have always been with us. In the 60s and 70s, the John Birch Society had a tremendously strong network of information flow based on these newsletters that they would literally mail out to people, which were crazy. But they, they worked on the technology of the mimeograph machine and the postal service. The reason they were never successful or any more successful than they were in just reaching a certain um, number of people was because they didn't have a champion, that great individual who stood up and said, this is what explains everything. So I think what we have to try to stress is the continuation, the expansion of what we call an open society, right? The more information is out there, the more good information will eventually get out there. But I also think that uh, in order to help people sharpen their critical thinking skills, we should introduce into schools what what you don't really get to to uh, unless you until you start college, which is called 
introduction to logic. It was a philosophy course everyone had to, had to take. And in, in logic, there's something called informal logic, which deals with argumentative fallacies. And conspiracy theories are ripe with argumentative fallacies. And if you learn that stuff, I loved studying that in college because it explained an awful lot. And if you learn about argumentative fallacies and the way information is taught to you earlier on, you're, I think you're much less likely to buy it later on. But also, as so many people have been saying, one of the things that, for instance, the incoming administration should concentrate on is fixing society. So fixing our infrastructure, fixing a lot, a lot of other things that will then sort of draw the poison away from the conspiracy mongers because society won't be failing the way it has been. So, for instance, the way, the way Germany after the war was able to, to get uh, to not only capture but to defang what were called the werewolves, a very, very small group of Nazi holdouts, was they fixed German society. Right, and they became it became just uh, ri ridiculous and counterproductive to try to fight it anymore. So I think creating a good and better society and one where logic is taught at an earlier age is, is the key. But I don't I don't envy the new administration at all because in the short term it's going to be very very difficult and and very I hope not bloody, but I wouldn't be surprised if it if it is if Trump keeps talking, I think that'll continue. Now, you know, you make this really important point that the stuff is always under the surface. And then when that messianic, you know, charismatic leader who's willing to say those things comes to the forefront, it can trigger these, you know, the these movements to come uh, above the surface. So what does that mean for the Republican Party and for future elections uh, in terms of how we can keep these forces at bay in the future? Well, I actually think it's not uh, not the fault of the establishment, for instance, the establishment within, within the Republican Party, but it's it's the fault of the people. I mean, I think one of the things, in a sort of backwards way, that proved the fact that American democracy in terms of elections really works is that Trump did get the Republican nomination, despite everybody in the Republican Party all the elites, Lindsey Graham saying he's a bigot, Ted Cruz saying that this is madness. Well, he, they couldn't stop the votes. So I think the, I think what Republicans should concentrate on is going out to their base, going out to the Republican Party voters and talking in more common sense terms. Everyone sort of thought it'd be crazy to, to vote for Trump. We don't have to worry about that. This is just a flare-up. It's not going to happen. But, in fact, because he was able to pick up on these certain traits, uh, he was able to get the nomination. So I think flooding the zone, if you will, with normal Republican presidential candidates will, will help a lot. And I hope that, again, we don't have a nominee, a nominee or a, um, a person running for the nomination who's like that. But again, it's very worrying because you can see that Ted Cruz, on the one hand, in 2016, was very anti-Trump and saying this is madness and this is this can't happen. But now, he's right on the not only on the Trump train, he's whipping up supporters because he sees that as a way to get more support for him. So we all constantly have to deal with the uh, I don't know the uh, the perfidy of politicians. You know, Ted Cruz is willing to go over to the dark side because it's more likely to get him the nomination than if he remained pure. 
Yeah, and and we're talking about the Republican Party now because of what happened. But one could say, you know, these principles apply to both parties. You know, there's crazy people on both sides of the spectrum. So we can't just, you know, we're dealing with a crisis right now uh, uh, that's sort of putting the Republican Party in the spotlight. But I'm sure there are many other examples that you can point to on the other side. Well, except that what I don't understand is, uh, and I and I and I mean that I genuinely genuinely don't understand this. The analog for Trump on the Democratic side would have been Marianne Williamson, the sort of new age guru or whatever she was, and that didn't work. And if you look at the history of the Republican Party since the 1950s, the 40s and 50s, they seem to continually nominate extremists. So, for instance, Eisenhower jumps into the 1952 Republican nomination. By the way, he was also recruited by the Democrats to join him. He was a pretty much a 50-50 whether he was going to be Republican or Democrat. But he jumped into the 1952 nomination because he saw Senator Taft, Robert Taft, who was, if not directly in league with Joseph McCarthy and the, and the extremists in the Republican Party, was certainly leaning that way and, and, and saw the power that that sort of hate-mongering could bring to, the, to a political campaign. Eisenhower jumped in as the, no, I'm going to be the moderate here, and I'm going to make sure the Republican Party doesn't go down the crazy train. But, for instance, he had to, in order to not to alienate all the Republicans, uh, he had to pick a relative extreme vice presidential nominee, Richard Nixon, right? Who was, who was not McCarthy, but he certainly was on the far, the far right of the Republican Party. And then, so Eisenhower is able to govern, but then, boom, lo and behold, in 1964, the Republicans nominate Barry Goldwater, which is just crazy. And even later on, they nominate Ronald Reagan. And people forget because he's now depicted as, as his great healer, but Reagan was considered by other Republicans to be a right-wing extremist. You know, we were going to have the collapse of society because he was going to take all of the, the governing infrastructure down because he wanted to have complete tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the party seems to keep doing this. We don't only occasionally get a McCain or a Romney or, a, if you will, a moderate. Uh, I don't know where these, these I don't know what, why there's this tendency in one party or the other, uh, one party to, to, to nominate people on the extreme. The Democrats haven't nominated an extremist since for, forever. Carter was very, very moderate. Carter was considered a right-wing Democrat. McGovern was kind of a, a left-wing Democrat, but a, a peacenik. But nobody, nobody else was. Hubert Humphrey was an establishment figure. John Kerry was certainly an establishment figure. Barack Obama was very, very moderate, and on and on and on. So I don't know, again, when I said a minute ago, I, I literally don't understand this. I, I literally don't understand why the Republican Party has been doing this for so long, and I am very, very worried about it. And uh, there have been news reports recently that Donald Trump has been very upset by comparisons to Richard Nixon uh, what comparisons, if any, are there in terms of this preponderance to spread conspiracy theories or to believe in them, et cetera? Well, I think the, the biggest one is the paranoia and everyone is against me. Uh, and Nixon had that from, since his very early days as a congressman. And I think what, what that manifested itself by lashing out at other groups. So Nixon comes to prominence in the 40s and the early 50s by lashing out at people who are pink, who are proto-communist or pseudo-communist. And he's he's not Joe McCarthy, but he almost is. He goes around saying all these people are, are, are communists and we need to rid them from the government. 
And then, of course, he becomes vice president and then loses the election and, and thinks, although this is, fa- this is historically incorrect, thinks that election was stolen from him in 1960. That adds to his paranoia. Then it immediately loses the 1962 gubernatorial election in California, which should have been a cakewalk. So he thinks the entire establishment is against him. And that's, this, that's the sort of paranoia that's being fed to Trump. He didn't win the popular vote in 2016. He lost this election. He has certain Republicans like Romney and, and others, you know, actively opposing him. So it just it just feeds this everyone's against me. And the same sorts of reports you're hearing coming out of the White House that he's raving and that he's ranting and that he's doing all this are exactly what happened with Nixon in the very last days. Nixon was literally on the floor in the Oval Office in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably because of but but for in Nixon's case, he knew he had done it to himself. Trump still believes it's being done to him by other people. And it could take a while before he, if ever, that he's able to accept that. Yes, and I think we have to accept the fact that you know Richard Nixon was um, miles ahead of Donald Trump in the intelligence uh, department. Even as paranoid and as problematic as Richard Nixon's psyche was, you know, he's, he's definitely uh, infinitely smarter than, than Donald Trump. And, and just going back to this uh, this theme of technology, uh, and and you were talking about Richard Nixon, you know, lashing out at people with Donald Trump. That lashing out was what caused has caused so much fear in the Republican Party. His ability to lash out on Twitter, the the bullying and the name calling, and you know that he he has this knack for tearing people down on Twitter that oppose him, and and that seems to be another way that technology has enabled you know, him to, to carry out his agenda. It's because it works completely well. I mean, a number of those rioters were going through the Congress looking for Pence to, quote, hang Mike Pence. Now, Mike Pence is as right-wing as you can get in the Republican Party in the 21st century. You know, it's not like they were, they were running through the Congress looking for Romney, but Trump had just recently said how disappointed he was in Pence because Pence wasn't going to to contest the election. And so, again, it comes back to this idea that the messianic figure says, ah, Pence is the problem, therefore now we believe a Pence is the problem, and Romney is, is forgotten. So it really is a combination of this paranoid um, tendency, this tendency to believe the simplest answer, and when those two things are championed by a popular individual figure— then it's almost impossible to stop it without direct intervention by by the military. Do you have any other closing thoughts on where we are and where we need to be? No, it's just to please, please, please people go, well, first of all, listen to my show. (laughs) Uh, But also, you know, read a book on argumentative logic and argumentative fallacies. It, it It really makes a huge difference in how you can understand the world. If you, for instance, if you get your history, I, I, I do deal a lot in Irish history. If you get your history from folk songs, you're going to have a very skewed and incorrect and factually uh, dodgy version of Irish history. The same thing happens with the, in, the, in the American left. If you walk around singing Pete Seeger songs and Joan Baez songs, as much as I might personally, just, um, personally agree with them, that's not what happened. <laughs> so you really have to read more and think more and react 
uh, maybe not react less, but react much less impulsively. Joe, thank you so much for joining me on Techtopia. Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Joseph Kuhill is the producer and host of the very popular Professor Buzzkill History Podcast, which addresses misconceptions and misunderstandings in history. Professor Kuhill earned his doctorate in history from the University of Oxford in 1998 and has taught at universities in Britain and the United States. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.